Two massive jobs as a brand new company. And you know, one could call it luck or whatever else. I imagine some amount of it was luck, but but I think that we were successful, and I guess back to your original question about what an entrepreneur can do to, to get out there and sell themselves or sell their business, is really your network is, 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 is your net worth. Eh? It's your value, it's all your value. And, um, and by us pounding the pavement, getting our name out there, putting it out there that, that you know, we're available to do this, this is what we can do. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in to the Top Form Podcast. My name is Gerald Watkiss, and this week I have a special guest for you. But before we get into that, if you're yet to get my books, Coloring Culture or Gerald's Hope, go to Amazon right now, get both of them, search Coloring Culture or Gerald's Hope, Donovan Watkiss, and you'll get those books. Amazon, ship them to you wherever you are in the world. Amazon US, Amazon Canada, Amazon UK, Amazon Germany, Amazon Japan, wherever you are in the world, Amazon will ship those books to you. So without much further ado, let's go right into my interview this week with Gary Matalon. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we're joined by no other than Gary Matalon, who is the CEO of Kelly Group, businessman extraordinaire. You've seen both tracks and records. He even had a club in Portmore, two clubs, one in Portmore, one in Kingston, Kelly, famous and fiction. Um, man built hotels, um, part of the restaurant business. I let him tell you all about it. Gary Matalon, what's up, man? Big up. What's up? What's up? Gary, it's a pleasure to have you on the Top Form podcast. You are a top performer. What would you say? is your ultimate achievement, your top performing achievement in your life thus far? Man, that's a tough one. Um, And it's a tough one simply because I think that, you know, everything that I have been through, uh, not just the good, but the bad as well, have, have all contributed to where I'm at right now in a big way. So it's, it's very difficult to single out um, anything. I mean, if we're talking professionally, I mean, certainly in life, I would have to say one of my proudest things is, is by far my family. And, you know, that, that goes without saying. Um, very fortunate to have an amazing wife and three incredible children. So that definitely trumps them all. That takes the cake. But, but um, as far as professional, I would have to say, I think what we've created here as a company um, with KLE and the products that we have developed and the, the, the things that we have done are, are something I'm extremely proud of. But I, I definitely can't take credit for that on my own. I think that it's a definite team effort. Um, you know, we've, we've been through... We've been through some, some rough times, but, um, but we have persevered. And I think that, that that in and of itself is something that we can definitely feel very proud of. 
So let's go back. Let's go back to Gary's early days. Where were you born? I was born in Nuttall Hospital, Kingston, Jamaica. Kingston, Jamaica. Yeah. And where did you go to school? And I, I started out in... I, my parents migrated in the 70s, in 76. And um, so my youngest years in school began in Florida, and uh, South Florida. And basically stayed there all the way up until I moved... Well, I, I always spent a lot of time in Jamaica. My grandparents were here, and I, I was, um, would be here for summers and Easter and Christmas and... Thanksgiving and every holiday that existed that we got off. <laughs> you were in we, Jamaica for Thanksgiving. Absolutely, <laughs> yes, sir. That's a fact. But um, but yeah, no. So it was um, it was uh, I really kind of grew up my younger years in South Florida, and then moved back here immediately after high school and started working. How, how you thought that South Florida experience influenced the way you maneuvered Jamaica? Well. I, I don't know if it I don't I don't know it's a great question I mean the reality is we you know being Jamaican in South Florida um, it's although you're not in Jamaica you're really still very connected so I think the influence for me was really a Jamaican influence from day one you know it was more a Jamaican influence than an American influence even though I was growing up there um, so you still got beaten <laughs> still, get, still get a beating <laughs> if I misbehave, no doubt. Yeah, man. And, and um, did you ever go to school in Jamaica at any point? Um, I did not. I did not. Um, I Do you think your education, which is what I was really getting at, was superior or inferior to your peers? Mm. Um, in in when you got into professional life, that experience of because the South Florida is a multicultural place, even sure, though you sure. had the Jamaican experience. Well, um, that's a great question. I, I I don't know because I only ever went. You know, it, I was in the in the that system, so it's really hard for me to make a comparison with something I didn't experience. However, I will tell you that intuitively, I feel the, the level of education here. Is far superior to what to to what it, what it is. And what over there? Uh, well, now that I have children going through the, the the system, I find that just the the type of um, the level of work that they're doing, the type of things that they're exposed to, that could also be a sign of the times. But but I've always really felt that the system here was just far more far superior to what is exists over there. I mean, even from a from a discipline point of view, the fact that people are in uniforms here, over there, everybody was wearing whatever they wanted to wear, um, you know, <clears throat> just just the, the, the type of, of things that we would engage in. I mean, after all, so put in the caveat that I wasn't a very good student <laughs> to begin with over there, so, you know, that may have also played a part, you know, I, I really wasn't as engaged as I probably should have been. I'm getting as much out of it as I should have been. Which is interesting. So you weren't a good student, but you're a good businessman. Do you think if you were a good student, you would have been a bad businessman? Because they say persons who, who excel in school are conformist and, you know? Mm. Do you think that helped you to find your way in life? Wow. Um, <laughs> it's hard to say, man. I, I, you know what? I regret. 
I regret playing the, playing the fool um, in school a lot because the truth is um, I think I could have got a lot more out of it, which would have helped me now. I know in my later years, like when I hit university and when I was doing my master's, I was engaged. I was taking it seriously and I did really well. Um, but it was in that younger days, in the, you know, high school and even before that, it was, uh, it was a mess. What did you do your master's in? At business. The business. Undergrad and business management, business administration. And then after school, you decided to? After school, I joined my family business. They, um, the family was working on the Greater Portmore project, building houses. And um, that was really my, my introduction into the working world. And it wasn't so, it wasn't so, it, it wasn't very, um, what should I say? It was a little bit rough. Um, because, you know, I obviously thought that going into the family business, I would be, you know, in a good, good position. I'd be, you know, making some decent money. I'd be kind of living the life. You know? So I had in my, in my mind that was a perception leaving university and, and coming now to join the family business. And boy, it certainly wasn't that. I mean, I was put to work in the sewer and water division as my first as my first go at it, which was horrendous, was driving around in a van back with a bunch of guys, that, you know what I mean? How old were you then? I was, I was, I started with the family business in my late teens and then went away to university and um, early twenties, right, right up through my twenties I was, um, I was working with the family business. But yeah, I went to the surveying department and did some, some, some jobs that were, not jobs that I had in mind, you know what I mean? Especially but, uh, with your masters. <laughs> exactly. Well, no, this is all pre-masters. I did my masters a little bit later down the road, but um, but yeah, no, it was it was a good learning experience nonetheless. And I, and and again, I don't regret any of it. I think all of it has contributed positively to where I'm at right now. Um, give you a full understanding and a full appreciation of what goes into everything day in and day out. And I don't think it's I think it's artificial to believe that you can just jump above all of that and, us and, 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 and really have a full appreciation for it. I don't think you can. So again, I embrace the fact that I had to go through that. So, so there's a moment, a pivotal moment, where you decided to leave the family business and go off into your own business. What caused that? <laughs> yeah, that was pivotal, yes. Um, so, I mean... I have a great relationship with with the family and I had the utmost respect for the um the business they they've done exceptionally well and it was really amazing to work with the business but I had some different ideas of course coming out of school being this young person with um you know not a whole lot of risk appreciation or anything I you know there was things I wanted to do things I wanted to change and I was you know all this rip roaring ready to go and I was kind of met with some resistance, you know, it was an older organization, a lot of people employed there, uh, a little bit more difficult to effect change. And um, it was getting a bit frustrating for me. And I felt at that stage of the game that I could make a go at it on my own. And um, management services was an industry that I saw as being a, a kind of emerging, growing um, place to be, and uh, so so offering management services was my was my foray into 
into my own business and um, we started a project. When, when you said my, oh, project management. Yeah, so it was a project management company that I formed with a partner, Dayton Levy. Um, Dayton is a few years older than me, a little bit more experienced. Um, he and I got along really well. We worked together at Western his own contractors prior to forming Newstone, which is the project management company. And um, yeah, we went, we went at it. We started very small. It was just the two of us, two employees. And um, <clears throat> we established our methodology, our project management methodology. We set out to, to get some work. And um, that was a humbling experience. because. Of what, what's your method of getting work? What would, how would you advise somebody who, any entrepreneur who, and, and specifically your business, how do you go about getting clients? What's that key ingredient to move from zero to two clients, ten clients? Well, I, I want to tell you, I think that that initial push to get the first set of jobs, the first job in particular, is probably the most difficult thing that, that we had to go through because at that point, we have no track record um, as a business. Individually, we come with some, some experience. But, um, but no track record to speak of. And um, what ended up happening is we started the business with a job uh, to build some houses for some, some so we had three clients that were building um, six houses. And about a few months into the job, they decided that they weren't gonna build them again. So of course, we were now out of work, okay? Um, and we sat there and we, we continued to work day in and day out to establish and build the business and build the methodology and get our, our processes in place and get everything ready to go for when the next job came on. Um, finding the next job was an was a, um, exercise in networking. It was really just kind of getting it out there to any and everybody that we had ever come into contact with to say, hey, we've got this project management company, you know, why don't you guys... Give us a try, you know. So you can, had to be a sales agent. You had to be. Every, I mean, it was yeah. We, we but the, it was the problem was that it wasn't the, the jobs weren't forthcoming. I mean, we we after about six months, seven months of sitting in the in the home office with the, the two of us looking at each other, you know, saying, shoot, we need to get something needs to happen here. Um, you know, you just see all the money that you had saved up in your bank account was going down and down and down and down, nothing adding to it. So it, it got a little nerve-wracking said, do, do I need to start dusting off my, my CV? Do I need to hit back the job market? You know, what's, what's going to happen? And then, you know, I always say to my team, I say, you never know what, you have, what the day has in store for you when you wake up in the morning. And of course, you know, um, because we, we had gotten ourselves out there enough that the, the name was out there and eventually somebody had, um, had, uh, had made the phone call. So of course, got to work that day feeling like, you know, it was, it was we were in grief and then all of a sudden the phone rings and that's the life-changing moment. Just uh, like that. Just like that. And it was, a, it was our first job was a, a, a great job, a big job, probably one of the greatest jobs you could ever want to get as a, even as a, as a seasoned company, much less a brand new company. And it was, uh, it was a Richmond project on the North Coast, um, 500 acre development. The Richmond Housing School. Yeah. That's one of my favorite places. Absolutely. I think I'm gonna move there eventually. It's beautiful. Yeah. So Lee Issa had a vision and he, he put together this development and he was looking for 
a way to execute it, you know. Um, and he he had sp spoke to somebody who I had, who I had I had already had a conversation with, and that person said, "Oh, well, wait, why don't you call Gary Matalan?" And of course, that's how the phone call came in. And I'll never forget, we drove down to Negril the following day to meet with him and um, made our presentation, made our pitch, um, pro provided a proposal, negotiated that back and forth. Eventually, we were awarded the job. And I, as I said to you, that changed the game because all of a sudden, now you have a very respectable first job. You're, you know what I mean? And, and you're, you're on the map. <laughs> you're on the map. And of course, our second job came in shortly thereafter, and it was a spin-off of the first job because of some of the professionals we were working with on the first job had recommended us to an overseas company that was coming here to build a 90,000 square foot call center, and that was Vistaprint. And in Montego Bay, we built one of the most state-of-the-art buildings in Jamaica at the time, to a 90,000, so two massive jobs as a brand new company. And you know, one could call it luck or whatever else. I imagine some amount of it was luck, but but I think that we were successful. And I guess back to your original question about what an entrepreneur can do to to get out there and sell themselves or sell their business is really your network is is is, is your net worth. Eh? It's your value. It's all your value. And um and by us pounding the pavement, getting our name out there, putting it out there that that you know we're available to do this. This is what we can do. You know, setting up your website, putting a professional um, profile out there. Um, you know, they, 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 we were able to secure these jobs. And how many, how many major buildings you've built so far? Or hotels are complex. Man, um, we've done well. We've done pretty well. We did, we did the, um, the, the Marriott in New Kingston recently. Uh, we've done, done a bunch of, of jobs that you'll be familiar with. But um, we're, we're talking about we formed the company in two thousand and four. So, few years well of, of uh, and, and we're doing exceptionally well now. And one of the things is, you know, at the beginning we fought so hard to get a job, and then shortly into that, once we executed successfully a couple of times, what they found is that we had other priorities and other other challenges facing us as a business that were separate from finding work. Finding work all of a sudden wasn't so much the issue anymore. It was now how you ramp up, how you scale up, how do you, you know what I mean, maintain that track record of being able to deliver because that's what ultimately how you're going to, that's what's going to give you the sustainability. So a lot of people would have retired after drop, dropping into the family business. <laughs> You didn't. You started your own business, and then you got success. A lot of people would have retired on that, and then you decided you want to go into entertainment <laughs> and form this company, a fresh company, in a landscape where entertainment is not commodified as much. Why did you do that? And and tell me the stories of that. All right. So we. Um Oh, that one came about is funny enough is while working on the Richmond project I spent a lot of time in Ocho Rios um, we'd go down there two days a week to, to spend time on the site and make sure everything is going well over there I um, had a good friend Kevin Burke I still have a good friend Kevin Burke who is um, was working with Chris Blackwell at the at the the place Island Village down there and um we we would have dinner in the evening and stuff after work because he was based down there and we would always link up and it, it was actually him that that pitched the idea to me of, of creating a nightclub in 
in uh, marketplace and uh, thought it was a great idea and there was a group of friends and they were looking additional investment and my initial my initial uh, move into into fiction nightclub was solely as a financial investment. I had zero intention of getting involved in that business, to be quite honest with you. I thought it was a good investment. I thought it would do well. Um, but I really had no, I mean, I was very busy with my construction and project management business, and I had no intention of getting involved in that. So went into that as a financial investment. And of course, in day one, uh, we realized that it was just going to be enormous and would require a lot more attention than we were planning to give it and, um, and it was at that point in time that the other guys started to kind of draw me in and uh, you know get me more and more involved to try and help because we were doing I mean 10 times what we had projected we would be doing in terms of um, in terms of just response from the market and and the success of it so it, it worked out really, really well. I mean, my, my, my deal with that investment was, was more a fun thing than anything else. Really didn't look at that initially as being, uh, you know, something that I'm going to end up working in full time or anything like that. That was never, I mean, entertainment is something I loved. I did it. It was my leisure thing. You know what I mean? I loved to go to a dance or I loved to go to a club and, you know, always on the road and enjoying ourselves and partying and stuff like that so this was really more of a fun thing than anything else but let me tell you something it just turned into a monster overnight literally how tell us tell us it how you just, got to you saying bold and then how you got to so, having multiple clubs <laughs> right <laughs> so of course they they um the nightclub business we we, we i made the investment on the basis that there was a void in the in the industry, I think what had happened was, um, you know, you had our predecessors, um, you had um, the asylum and the quad and all of these guys going at the time, and they had been going for a number of years. And if you look at that landscape, the the, the nighttime entertainment landscape in the other more developed markets, nobody lasts that long. They usually turn them over really quickly and that's because the market the market insists on that the market demands that so it wasn't happening here so is it that the market wasn't demanding it or the, the there was just nobody fulfilling that that need of the market and we thought you know what let's go let's 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 change the game let's let's disturb it a little bit and we we threw in this nightclub that was very different than anything that had existed um, here before it had VIP booths and it was, you know, aiming to really cater to that kind of, um, you know, very posh, very elegant type of nighttime nightclub experience. Um, we, we did things that, that weren't done before um, here, like, you know, we did the DJs just played straight music, like there was no talking, there was no stopping, there was no, just things that were trying to mimic what you'd find in some of the major markets in the nightclubs, not knowing how it was going to be received. I actually got advice along the way that why well, you guys can't do that here, you know, because that won't work in Jamaica. 
that won't work in Jamaica. I love when somebody tells me that won't work in Jamaica because make it work. I, I just absolutely, <laughs> that's my motivation right there. So we, uh, we went at it and, and um, we, you know, high security people knew that when they came in there they had to exercise um, a degree of discipline and, and that it was going to be a safe, fun place. It was the only place that had secure parking for a nightclub, when you think about it. Um, people weren't accustomed to that either. Yeah, so, you didn't have to pay. Exactly. <laughs> so it was, it, was, um, it was a game changer. And of course, we, we figured, obviously made the investment thinking that it was going to work and that it was going to be popular. But we underestimated how popular and how well it was going to work. So of course, it blew up and we had to very quickly get ourselves in a situation where we could manage that degree of demand. And... Um, and it was after the first year of operation that we decided we went to a trade show in Las Vegas, six partners. And um, it was at the trade show in Las Vegas that we were discussing, you know, what are we going to do with all this success? Are we going to leverage this onto something else or are we going to just ride this out until it's done? And the group unanimously felt that, that we should leverage the success that we're having in fiction onto, onto something else. And... Um, I believe it was David Shirley at the time, um, who's one of our founding partners and who is um, now our chairman at KLE. And I think it was him because he's in the sports business already with locker room sports. He, he had said, you know, that the sports in the industry, sport is huge. Sport, I mean, is just, is just gigantic. If we can take this whole entertainment thing, bar and restaurant, bar and food vibe, infuse it with the whole sports thing and and of course all of us extremely passionate about brand jamaica we said you know create a concept like this then we could possibly go global with it we go global now you're talking about earning foreign exchange you're talking about you know taking yourself out of um just any kind of limits any kind of limits and the volatility of your local market are you really kind of spreading your yourself out there so um so we thought, man, it sounds good. Can we do it? I don't know, a group of young kids, you know what I mean? Like, you know, who's going to take us seriously? How are we going to get the attention of international investors, that kind of thing? And, and this was all happening right around the time that you're saying was tearing up Beijing and Berlin and these things, you know, setting records. Um, and we had this, we had an idea to approach a number of Jamaican celebrities and um, and bring them into the into the mix as as equity partners and use their profile and use their popularity to help us to to you know get people's attention and um, so we approach well you say it was a patron of fiction at the time again this goes back to what I tell you about networking because we had the nightclub we we ended up um, you know catering to a lot of people. So you had the Shaggy, you had the Sean Paul, and the Usain, and the, you know, all these people coming in there on a regular basis, Chris Gale, everybody. And um, we had access to them, and we utilized that. We said, you know, hey guys, we have this idea. We individually met with them, and, and, and you know, everybody seemed very interested. Everybody thought it was a great idea. At the time, Usain's management team had, had indicated that although they would love to come on board, they didn't want to do it with a group of other people. They would love to see if they could establish it as, uh, um, you know, kind of him one. And uh, we felt at the time as we went through, uh, you know, the whole strategic planning process that this could be a great partnership. And, um, and we also had all the confidence that he would continue to do great. 
So of course, you know, that was a, that was a gamble at the time that we took and it obviously paid off big time for us because he went on to, you know, win Olymp another Olympics and so he had a triple double and then he went on <laughs> to win a third, you know what I mean? So he had a triple, the triple single, the triple double and not a triple triple, you know what I mean? Yeah. It just was, it was a dream come true for us. And then you decided, so you have one tracks and records mm -hmm. and then you decided to launch 50. <laughs> well, it doesn't stop there, you know. Um, how, how that works now is that we said to expand the the restaurant, it's going to be difficult for us to to go and open new tracks and records restaurants in these foreign markets because we don't know those markets. We're not familiar with those markets, and you know, to be successful in that type of business, you're going to need intimate knowledge of your market. Yeah. There's also, it's very expensive to open a tracks and records. So to come up with the money to open all of these locations in, in the overseas markets would have been way beyond any realistic range for us. So we looked at a franchising model. We're familiar with franchising because Jamaica has a lot of franchises that come from overseas. So you have, you know, KFC and your Pizza Hut and all of these franchises that that Jamaica buys and you know pays a royalty to the franchisor overseas and then gets use of their brand, gets use of their concept. We thought, why can't we create a Jamaican concept and turn around and sell it as a franchise to them? Because as it is right now, they are already loving brand Jamaica. They're trying to knock off whatever they can knock off of brand Jamaica. You understand what I mean? So we suppose can do brand Jamaica better than anybody else because we are Jamaica. Yeah, so we said let us let us package this this business. Let us package it. Let us establish it to the to the extent that we can turn around now and sell it. But I don't want you to skip skip over that part. There's there's something that the, the regular entrepreneur don't get, which is the importance of packaging, patenting, research, marketing. Go into that a little for me and and just inform people on how was the process of packaging and, and making sure that only you are unique with a, a particular thing. Sure. So, <clears throat> so that's essentially our asset. That, what you talk about when, when you say packaging, um, our, our concept, that's, that's what we own, right? So how, how, how it works is that all right, we, we decided to create this, this um, Jamaican-themed casual dining restaurant and bar concept, okay? So we had to clearly define, to, 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 to make that a thing, we had to then define every aspect of it. You know, what colors are the walls? What does the menu look like? What are the recipes for the menu items? What is the type of knife and fork? How do you present it at the table? Is there a table setting or is there a caddy in the middle of the table? What size are the tables? What do the uniforms look like? What is the music playing that's in there? You understand what I mean? So now you start to go through and you start to define every single aspect of this concept. And once you do that, you document it. And once you have it documented, you register that. So, so in terms of our, it, it forms our assets. That's our assets. That's what we own. And, um, and we protect that via, you know, all our trademarking and, and um, all our copyrights. We also, um, you know, we register. It costs a lot of money to, to it does. get the copyright it, every it time. It does. Hence our public offering, <laughs> which took place in 2012. 
So in 2012, we realized that what we had in front of us, if we were going to be successful, we needed some money to do it. And um, we, we went to the banks and stuff like that that we could access, that we could get access to. And um, somebody along the way had suggested that we look at possibly listing on the, stock, on the junior stock exchange. And um, it, it seemed like a feasible approach for us to get money um, at the time. It was a lot of work. That in and of itself was a hell of a, a, an accomplishment for a bunch of young people to list on the stock exchange. Um, so, yeah, it was it it, 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 it was costly, but uh, and again, um, you know, would we have done it differently had we had it to do over again? Yeah, I know a lot more now than I knew than I knew then. So you know, we paid a bit for the learning curve. But, but I have to tell you, I think at the end of the day, it got us where we are. No, we were able to raise the funds that we needed to complete the, the process of establishing our documentation, establishing our legal, um, the legal papers that we needed to be able to then so we had to register it in the United States, register it in the United Kingdom, register it in Canada. So, you know, the markets that we planned to, to enter, we had to be ready for, the, they had to be ready for us. So the legal work in those markets was a lot. Um, what, what would you say is your source of information? Because what you're explaining to me is obviously not primary information. This is tertiary level access to, to stock markets and, and different markets. Sure. How did you get the information so that you know this is going to be the next move? <laughs> Great question. Let me tell you. So the the thing with it, yeah, is that for me, um, it all kind of goes back to my network. Yeah. So you can only do so much research on your own. Yeah. You got the internet. It's a world of information. Yeah. You can dig up how to start a franchise. There's tons. I mean, reading you can read from now till next year about how to start a franchise on the internet. But uh, ultimately, what ended up happening is that. I would pick up the phone, call people who I knew very well, call people, some, some of the people I didn't know at all. I just, you know, I know JR knows so and so, so let me ask him, you know, you mind if I get a number for Gary? Because I, I have a question, I think he could possibly help me. I literally cold call people and, and ask for lunch meetings. I have to buy a few lunches here and there, but at the end of the day, I was able to access, I mean, um, I, I'll never forget, there were a, a number of people that have helped me along the way significantly um, just because I asked, just because I asked. Some of them um, said they get back to me, they never got back to me. So you're not going to get success 100% of the time, but you ain't going to know if you, if you don't ask. So you can't really hesitate to ask. And again, that's where I kind of go back to the networking and stuff like that, because I was able to unearth a lot of contacts that helped me in the establishing of the franchise system. Um, I was unable to get a lot of, I was sorry, I was, un, I was able to get a lot of answers to a lot of questions um, that I had that were raised as I went through the process. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a combination of that. I went to trade shows, just try to educate yourself. The information is out there um, and you're gonna, it's going to come from different, it's going to come from different places and in different forms. It's just that you have to be so keenly and aggressively looking for it that you're going to find it yeah. what's your what's your 
mission for Tracks and Records after this? You're about to launch how many? So we've, we have three operating restaurants in Jamaica now, and our first restaurant outside off of the shores of Jamaica, which uh, is going to open on the 10th of October, which is in a couple of weeks, in London, England. Right there, Liverpool Street uh, um, on Middlesex Street, so right in this, this is right in center, a very very busy area. Um, we're super excited. It's a twelve thousand square foot location. Um, we've had the London team here a couple of weeks ago. We had them here for eleven days. Did all the training in the kitchen. The executive chef was here. The general manager was here. They worked in the restaurant. They saw everything that they needed to see. I took them, did some cultural immersion. I took them to Negril. I took them to Mobe. stopped on the roadside where they eat coconut. And so, so they, they, they can't go to Tracks Records, England, and say they have jerk rice. No, that's not <laughs> going to happen. <laughs> that's not happening. But yeah, it's, um, it, it's, been a, it's been an amazing process because, of course, it speaks to a lot of things. One, it speaks to the fact that what we thought about 10 years ago when we were dreaming of the concept that people would actually buy into it, yeah, we, we've proven that point. So check that box, right? It also speaks to the fact that, um, you know, we, the documentation that we spent so much money and so much time putting together and that system that you and I talked about, the packaging of it, uh, how well was that done? It, it, you know, we're seeing that now because, I mean, we saw it when we opened Ocherius and we saw it when we opened Montego Bay because in truth and in fact, we opened those places using the documentation that we had created from the prototype which we opened in Marketplace in Kingston. So we knew the documentation worked, but now you're doing it in a completely mm-hmm. different time zone, mm-hmm. in a completely different section of the world. You know, you're on the other side of the earth opening attraction records, and you're not there physically. I mean, I could jump in my car and be in Montego Bay in a couple of hours. I can't jump in my car and be in London in a couple of hours. I mean, I've spent a few weeks well over there in the last few months, you know, and, and that has helped. But I have my whole team from here, four people from here going over. Um, on Thursday this week, and they're going to be there for the next till the 15th of October, and then I'm going over on the first, and we're going to be there. So we're going to open a restaurant, and it will be, as far as I know, the first ever homegrown Jamaican concept that has expanded into international markets through franchising model. From Jamaica. From Jamaica, franchised into an international market. I, I think they had an island grill. Not as a franchise. The owner of Island Grill had opened okay, some okay. Island Grill locations in Florida, um, but that's very different. Mm-hmm. Different from a franchise. Yes. So in other words, if we raised money and we went and opened a tractor record yeah, in yeah, Florida, yeah, yeah. I definitely mm-hmm. or in anywhere else in the world, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be saying. But, but as a franchise, the same way you have KFC as a franchise, this is tractor records franchise that has, that somebody has bought. A restaurant group in London and UK has bought. And so the one that is opening in, um, in a couple of weeks is the first of 15. So the, the, the contract that was signed with them is what they call an area development agreement or a multi-unit development agreement for 15 units over five years. Yeah. 
So this is the first of that of that. So so you're really Colonel Gary. <laughs> well. No, that's beautiful, Gary. I, I'm inspired. I, I'm just taking in what you're saying and I'm listening. Um, so eventually you're gonna have to let go off this brand because it's, it's taken off by itself. It's just like KFC. You don't really know who owns KFC. You just know that there's a old bearded person. <laughs> Um, Starbucks, you don't see Starbucks guy, and, and this is very commendable being a Jamaican brand that's doing this. Um, you might just be the first restauranteur billionaire, U.S. billionaire, <laughs> out of Jamaica to, to, to make it work like that. Um, what advice would you give for persons who want to franchise whatever they're doing um, to, to build? multi-dimensional companies where where it just take on a life of its own so i mean franchising itself is a very specific thing and i think that one of the probably the most important things for anybody to understand is i think it's a genius business model it's a genius business model but it's it's not a quick it's not a quick buck you're not going to make a quick buck franchising because the process to establish a franchise, the process that we have, have been through to get to where we are now, to where we can confidently turn around and sell our concept into international markets, that process has taken us the better part of seven years, six years, you know? Um, and, it's, and it's tedious and it's a lot in creating the documentation that speaks to every aspect, every little aspect of the business. Is, is, is a monster, you know what I mean? A lot of people won't appreciate that until they start getting buried in it. And, um, and I think that it's a great model and I think it can work, but I wouldn't recommend it for anybody who is not prepared to go through the, the hell of trying to put it all together, you know? I mean, if you have unlimited resources, you know, the money is not an object and you have a lot of help around you and stuff like that, it's probably not going to be as bad. But the way I did it, where we basically were, you know, trying to do it on a shoestring budget and, and, and I ended up having to do a lot of it myself. So just physically behind the computer, putting it all together, physically at the restaurant, you know, trial and error, certain things, trying to define exactly what it was that we were, that we were putting out there. That we were and my last question is, um, what, where's your spiritual center? Like, what drives you? What, what, what do you do to, when you're not working, what, what, other than your family, you mentioned your family, but what, what does Gary do to find solace, to find spirit, to find rejuvenation? Wow. That's a good one too. Um, I, I think that, you know, the whole, the whole passion behind, the, behind country, I, I mean, Jamaica, I'm supremely passionate about Jamaica. Um, I think, you know, being able to work with people and just helping to contribute to people's lives. I mean, I have people that work with me that have worked with me for years now that, you know, literally would, would just say things to me that would absolutely blow my mind. And those are, what, those are some of the biggest drivers for me. You know, you realize that you don't think about, I don't think about these things when I'm doing them, but then all of a sudden somebody comes to you and expresses that you've changed their life or because of you, they were able to finally get the house that they've always dreamed of. You know, those kinds of things impact 
Impatio in places you didn't even know <laughs> existed. You know, what I mean, like literally, you'll end up, you know, really just, just uh, moved by the by 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 that. So I think it's interaction with people. I think it's being able to put Jamaica out there and hopefully getting back return for the country for what we're doing. Um, yeah, those are those are really, I, I think you know. I always believe in God's plan. I think I think we're all kind of, you know, the writing is on the wall. So you just have to do your best and live your best as much as possible. So and the rest is out of your control, you know. So I really don't I really don't overthink anything. I just try and and work within my capacity and within my means, and, and you know the rest happens around you. Gear Matalon, big up. <laughs> <Respect>. <laughs>Hey, before you go, if you're yet to get my books, please remember, go to Amazon or Barnes & Nobles and get my books, Coloring Culture and JR's Hope. Both those books are about changing your life despite traditions, despite ancient beliefs, despite the culture you grew up in, changing whatever norms that you became accustomed to politically, religious, um, any other kind of inherited circumstance you can change it and my books explain just how to do that jr's hope and color and culture on amazon and barnes and noble thanks for listening